So there is, where there was a um, very wealthy, rich man, had more wealth than most people in the world, who ended up rising to govern the global superpower of his day. Do you, do you have an idea who it is I'm talking about? His name's King Solomon. Um, so uh, it might sound a little bit like Donald Trump, but it's not. It's King Solomon. So uh, Solomon authored the book of Ecclesiastes, and he gives us some insight about having wealth and power and prestige. Uh, if you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that's that's Solomon. He says, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we're going to see three things this morning. Um, the first thing that we're going to see is the thesis. So we'll see the thesis, then we'll see the futility of nature, and then we'll see the futility of man's aspirations. So these are the three things. And right off the bat, we see the thesis. The thesis is that life is vain. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So right off the bat, he says, everything is vain, life is vain. Now, Solomon commanded the largest military of his day. He was king over Israel during its heyday. So Israel at this time is the superpower in its region. Um, he has intricate trade networks, military alliances. He's the real deal. And he says that everything is vanity. So if Solomon's life is vain, if, if the wealthy leader of a military power says that life is vain, how much more so is ours? Verse 3 says, What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Basically, there's, there's no advantage. Um, the, he says that there's, our work is ultimately pointless under the sun. Um, the key phrase here is under the sun. Under the sun, where is that? That's here on earth, right? So under the sun, here on earth, everything is vain. Um, if you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, which I, I highly recommend, I love Ecclesiastes, I, I would caution you to understand that under the sun is a key repeating phrase. This book is talking from an earthly perspective, okay? So he says, under the sun, everything is vain. Um, but there is a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, our work will not be in vain. So 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that we will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, and he says that we will be tested through fire. So uh, our works will be tested as though by fire, and our wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up, but any gold, silver, precious metals that remain will be refined, purified, and will be rewarded for those things. So if all of our work here on earth is vain, that doesn't mean that everything is vain. It just means that there are works which have reward and works which don't. And the works which care reward, the works for which will be rewarded the judgment seat of Christ are those which bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. So there is a labor which does have an advantage, but it's not 
our work and our toil and our job and promotions and things like that. So the next thing that we see is the futility of nature. Verse 4. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The earth remains forever. Um, a lot of us seek to leave a legacy. Uh, if you're like me, sometimes you think about, you know, when I leave Stillwater, I, I had thoughts about when I graduated, what would people think about me? Would I leave a legacy? Uh, we have these kind of thoughts. Um, but I, I just have a question. By show of hands, who remembers the first name of all of their great-grandparents? Raise your hand if you know the first name of all your great-grandparents. Okay, I see a few hands. That's good. Uh, most hands did not go up, right? So, Lord willing, one day we will be great-grandparents. And our own bloodline will not remember our name. Within a few generations, it'll fade away. Because a generation goes and a generation comes. And that calls into question a lot of our motives. Especially as, as we get older, we, we begin to think about what will I leave behind? But the reality is we don't tend to leave a legacy. And, and you might say, well, you know, what did my great-grandparent actually do? They weren't notable people. Uh, raise your hand if you know who Franklin Pierce is. Does anyone know who Franklin Pierce is? A few hands. Yeah, he's a president of the United States. Okay, so there you go. Um, Sometimes people just don't leave legacies, and that's okay. So verse 5 says, The sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, and blowing toward the south, then returning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses, and the wind returns. And all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And to the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. So uh, this, this cycle of Creation is never ending. And Romans 8 tells us that creation groans under the curse of sin, just waiting for the day of redemption. So even our most valiant efforts ultimately have no bearing on the forces of nature. All of our economic activity and investments and labor and everything doesn't even change the course of the wind. So Creation is unfazed by our accomplishments, it's unfazed by our promotions, and it's groaning under a curse. And we don't leave a legacy, so all these things are vain. And then we see the next thing is the futility of man's aspirations. Verse 8, verse 8 says, all things are wearisome, and man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Uh, the last time I taught this, uh, my immediate response when I read verse 8 is to think, well, mankind is insatiable, right? We, we, we can't be satisfied. But I, I began to think about it for a moment, and I thought, are we really insatiable? And I, I would say, no, we're not, but we're seeking satisfaction in the wrong thing. See, man is perfectly capable of satisfaction, but we chase the wrong things. So for me, I, I love Mexican food. It's my absolute favorite thing. I love just a little cilantro and onion. That's it. Um, but it's not like when I eat one taco, I never have to eat one again, right? I have to keep going back and back and back. How many of you guys have a favorite song? 
Favorite song? Okay, so when you heard that song, you never listened to music again, right? Because that was it, Apex. No, if you're like me, you probably played it a thousand times on repeat, okay? The, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We have to keep going back and back and back. So the, the things which satisfy us don't. And yet we live like they do, right? So the only thing, the only one who actually satisfies us is Christ. Christ alone satisfies. When we were created, we were created in God's image, in the Garden of Eden, and we were in paradise. But the thing that made the Garden of Eden paradise wasn't its lush gardens and trees and fruit. It was satisfaction. It was fulfillment. But we fell from that. And so we are designed to be satisfied in our maker, but we've fallen. And so one day, uh, Romans 8 tells us that uh, whoever's in Christ has been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. One day we will be conformed to him once more and we will be satisfied. So we were created to be satisfied. We are not insatiable, but we chase the wrong things. We live like food and money and pleasure and success. We live like these things satisfy us, even though you and I know that they don't. But we chase them anyway. We know that Christ is the only one who satisfies, but we neglect him in exchange for the things of this world which are temporal. Stuff of earth competes for the one who actually satisfies. And so, so rather than neglect Christ, let's seek to be satisfied in him, right? So verse 10, verse 10 says, Is there anything of which we might say, see this, this is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. And there is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. And there will be for them no remembrance among those who come later still. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, there's nothing new? I mean, like the iPhone came out 11 years ago and already look at the iPhone 10 versus the original and, and, and that's just a huge marvel, a technological leap, right? Or, or even a car. Cars only have been around 100 years. And how incredible is that? There are new ways of doing old things. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean what is a phone? It's a form of communication, right? So mankind for thousands of years has been seeking new ways to do the same old thing, communicate. And what is a car but a means of transportation, Mankind, you know, before cars, it was horses and carriages. And before carriages, someone invented the wheel, right? And so we keep doing the old thing, but in new ways. So there's nothing that's actually new, and it's all vanity. Verse 11 tells us there is no remembrance of earlier things. And that's true. Um, I read a poll, or a survey rather, uh, a few weeks ago that found that 40% of millennials did not know what Auschwitz was. Um, And you might be one of the 40%, I don't know. Uh, So Auschwitz is one of the most nefarious concentration camps within Nazi Germany. Millions of Jews were killed there. And yet 40% millennials don't know what it is. And we'd like to think that somehow there was meaning in that, that there would be a consequence that it would, it would remain in our memory, but it fades away. You give it a few generations and it's gone. 
or, or December 7th, 1941, Franklin Roosevelt said that that was the date which would forever live in infamy. And yet most of us on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor don't even realize it. So things fade away. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So why, why Ecclesiastes? Why, why would I teach this? This is kind of depressing, right? Um, and it's my favorite book. So am I a masochist? No. Uh, I, I love Ecclesiastes because for me, it calls, it's a motive check. It calls into question my priorities. If Christ alone satisfies, if my name won't be remembered a hundred years from now, and if the biggest events in human history fade from our memory, then what should I be living for? It's a complete motive check. So our aspirations are ultimately futile, and there's only one thing that lasts. Well, actually, there are three. There are three things that are eternal, as, as we sometimes say here. There are three things that are eternal. God, his word, and people, right? God, his word, and people. Um, so if God and his word and people are the three things which are eternal, the three things for which our labor actually counts, and the three things which will have consequence for the rest of eternity, then where might our investments be? If we know on the front end the things which last and the things which have an eternal reward, then where might we put our effort, our time, and our energy? We neglect the reality that God, his word, and people are eternal. And and not just his people, all people. All people are eternal. Every single human being will exist forever, either with God or without him. So that being in mind, I want to invite some members of our team who went to the UK to come on up, and we're going to do a panel. And as they're coming up, I just, I would just want to leave on this, that if it's true that there's no remembrance of other things, even our ancestors, our great-grandparents, big events in human history, if, if all of this is ultimately vanity, then what should we live for? What lasts? And with that, I would like to... Leave, uh, ask these guys some questions. Well, I have my questions here, so I'll grab this. Okay, so we were in the UK. We went to Sunderland, and uh, here's a picture of our team. Sunderland, if you don't know, is located in the northeast of England, around um, close to Scotland. It's about an hour drive from Scotland. So um, I'm going to just ask each of these people a few questions from our team and, and give you guys the opportunity to hear about some of our experiences while we were over there. So the first question, Amanda, share a moment of impact. Share the most impactful thing that happened for you while you were there. And you might need to check if that's on. There you go. Um, I think for me, the most in- important thing that I remember is a guy named James when we were out um, evangelizing. Um, I remember in our conversation that he said, ignorance is bliss. Um, He didn't necessarily care to know on what would happen to him after death, and he didn't necessarily care if there was a God, um, basically because um, 
he was kept on going back to Hitler, and if he made it into heaven, he didn't want to be there. And so he was more concerned about someone else's salvation than his own. Hi, my name is also Amanda, so that was kind of confusing on our trip. Um, But I think the thing that was most impactful for me, I had a conversation with a man named John, um, and, and the very first thing he said to me was, I hate Abrahamic religions. So you can imagine you're standing there and you're talking to someone that's immediately opposed to my identity. Um, but we, we continued this conversation. And as I got to know John, um, I learned that he was raised as Catholic. Um, and he could point to the year, 1975, that he um, completely wrote off religion. Um, and, and again, as we continue to get to know him, um, he also revealed that he was um, a gay man. Um, and so we, we kind of pieced together that he may have been um, part of the church, and then when he um, revealed that he was gay, that he was kicked out or something like that, or his family disowned him. But um, it was obvious that he had been hurt somehow. Um, and, and that was not just John. That was several people that we talked to that just had a, a terrible um, interaction with, with Christians um, and so-called Christians and Christianity. Um, but it, it became very prevalent to me that um, John had a void that he was trying to fill. Um, and he, he did that by um, fulfilling his own desires. Um, and as Tyler said, that there is something that he was searching for. He was searching for that satisfaction, um, and that could only be achieved by Christ. And so we gave him the gospel, but um, it's just amazing to me that the opposition that he had toward Christianity, and that was pretty eye-opening for me. I'm Corby. Um, my The most impactful moment for me was uh, we actually had the immense privilege of going to a school and sharing our faith there. Uh, because in England they don't have they don't have a separation of church and state, so you can actually do that there. And uh, my the entire trip, I just had a lot of difficulty just sharing my faith. Um, and then when I was at the school, it was just so easy and so fun for me to just talk about who Jesus Christ is and what He did for me and what He can what He's done for them as well. Uh, and then it's really revealed to me just how much I actually enjoy children's ministry so much so that I, I can see myself. I mean, years from now, maybe becoming like a Sunday school teacher. I'm Blake. Um, I actually had two different things that were really impactful on the trip. And um, one of them was Amanda Zimmerman and I talked to a guy that um, was very sure he was a Christian. We asked him if he died, he would go to heaven. He was so sure about it and said yes. And then the pastor of the church we were at came up and asked him again later. And he said, "Uh, I think so. And then um, when he was asked how many sins they think ought think it would take to keep him out of heaven he said maybe 10 or so and then was genuinely surprised whenever the pastor said it was only one um and so just the fact that he was just living in that anxiety of hoping that he had um not done enough bad to keep himself um in heaven was just kind of eye-opening to um the culture there and also the people who were in the church it was amazing to see that we had people at Bethesda that were from imperial monarchists to labor party to everything and they were all completely different politically but all united in christ and so that stuff was just trivial compared to the fact that they were united in christ and that was really cool to see so
my name is Rodney. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to go on this mission trip last year. Um, so I actually got to see a lot of old friends. Uh, we really made some close relationships when we went last year, so it was nice to continue to foster those relationships. Uh, but one of the differences of this year is we got to actually do a lot more evangelism with some of the younger members of the church. Um, and while doing this, I got the opportunity to find out really more of the specific struggles of some of the Christians that are living in this postmodern culture. A lot of the college students that are surrounded by uh, this secularist culture um, and just the specific day-to-day struggles that they're having to deal with. And that was very um, humbling and very eye-opening. And just, it leads you to realize what you need to be praying for for those other members of the body. So, uh, so the next question is describe in a few words the people of Sunderland, the, the unbelievers in Sunderland. What, what was the culture and society like in Sunderland? Okay, so the people in large in Sunderland are definitely very lost, but for those that don't feel dissatisfied, a lot of them are actually very arrogant. Um, they think that they're in control of their lives. They think that they are the masters of themselves. Um, so it's just a very arrogant culture. Um, a lot of it's been fostered by science as well as just that individualistic society. So. I would say open but closed um, <laughs> and the fact that lots of them were open to, um, oh, this is what you believe, that's really cool, I'd like to learn more about it. But um, they were very closed off and like this is my opinion, this is what I believe and don't touch my bubble kind of thing. Um, and so... They were open to us talking about it, but they weren't open to any change of mind on their part. Um, so, yeah. I would say lost, just in the truest sense of the word. Um, like, for example, I was speaking to a, a Latvian hockey player from Florida uh, <laughs> who uh, he just seemed to be bouncing around from place to place. He had only been in Florida for a year, and then he had just recently moved to Sunderland. And he just, he really didn't know what he was doing with his life or where he was going. And he was lost. Not only was it very apparent that he was lost, but he had no idea that he was lost too. I would like to just butt in there for a minute. There's a guy whom we met um, who was actually a believer at Bethesda Church. And he had just come to Christ a year and a half ago. And he was sharing with us, he told me, in Ephesians 2, when it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but Christ made you alive, he was like, that's me. That, that was absolutely me. He's like, I don't, I'm not sure if you know because you were so young when you came to faith in Christ, but I was dead. I was just living for the next day. I was just trying to get through the day. And it was incredible to see just how lost people really are without Christ. So I would describe the people of um, Sunderland as deceived, um, and deceived not only by um, world leaders or by people who are so-called specialists in science, but um, also just deceived by their love of their sin. Um, We as people gravitate towards our sin. We want that. That's what we seek after. And without Christ, that's your life. That's you look for the next gratifying moment. Um, and so the people are Sunderland are very deceived by their sin. They are, they're blinded by it. And, and that's all that they, they really know and all that they really want. 
Um, I would describe them as self-led. Um, they are very open to having a conversation about what you believe, but that's not necessarily what their reality is. Um, more often than not, I've kept on running into people that thought that they themselves was a god um, and that they had their own choices of their life and it didn't necessarily matter what you had to say. It was all based on what they thought. Okay, so this last question is the kicker. How did God use this trip to expose areas in your life which still need growth? Um, I guess for me it would be patient, patience. Um, I never did think I would find myself in a position to where I was trying to help my team members, not just the one that went, but the Bethesda people, um, of being bold and going out there and sharing the gospel, not just standing there listening to other people um, share the gospel, but actually participate. Um, I found that quite hard every day to renew the, that patience and keep going and trying to help others. For me, it showed me um, my lack of love for the world. Um, I, I would generally consider myself a loving person. I think most of us would. We want to love people. We want to help people. Um, but if you truly love people, you'll share the gospel with them because that's the greatest gift in the world. That's the greatest hope that we have to offer. Um, and so it really showed me my, um, my lack of love for people. And, and it showed me that I need to adjust my priorities to um, there's no fear in love. And so why, why should I be afraid of sharing the gospel if I truly love someone? I used to really struggle with anxiety and worrying when I was younger, and I thought that I had addressed that and learned to really trust God in that. And little did I know that uh, as soon as we went onto the streets to evangelize, I was the embodiment of anxiety. And I, I was just as meek as I possibly could have been when I was on the streets trying to talk to people. And it just really showed to me that in the greatest thing that I could possibly do in fulfilling the Great Commission, that is where I, I'm the worst at. That's where I'm the weakest at. And and that's where I need to continue to just trust in God and lean on him in that. Mine is sort of the same as Corby's. Um, and just that it's honestly a lot easier to talk to someone, a stranger, and to lead it to a gospel conversation. It's a lot easier than I thought it was because I hadn't done it much in the past. Um, so it kind of exposed that that's something that needs to happen the whole time. Um, like uh, I was talking to someone else about it, and they said that uh, I mentioned that it was harder coming back here and doing it. And they said that, our purpose going to Sunderland was to spread the gospel and we come back here. That's still our purpose. And that's why it was easier there. And it seems harder here, but we just don't realize it's actually still our purpose. So I think one of the things that this trip really taught me and exposed about myself was that I really need to start to see the merit in teamwork uh, and being a team player, um, not only in action and pulling my own weight, but also being someone who is supportive of my other team members. Um, and I wish I could say that I learned this by doing it, um, but unfortunately I learned this by not doing it and seeing uh, that I was really taking a lot of the energy from the team rather than providing it. So um, it was a very humbling experience at least. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, we really did have a great time in the UK and God is doing a lot of great things there. And I think the big takeaway is the, the lostness of the people in Sunderland, but 
the hope that we have. And I think Blake put it so well. Um, we should consider ourselves missionaries wherever we are. So yes, we went to the UK on a mission trip, but then we just came back for our long-term mission in Stillwater. And we'll be here until God moves us. And I think that's an important mentality to stay evangelistic and to, to have a love for people. So I'll give these guys a hand. Thank you guys so much. I also just want to thank you guys as a church for being so generous. Um, you guys helped us get there with your support financially, uh, buying gifts from the craft table. So you guys have really helped to bring the gospel to countless people. So thank you guys very much. Um, we're almost done. Okay, so we saw the thesis, which is that life is vain. And that's saying something coming from a guy who's achieved so much. And we saw that nature is futile. We can't change it. It just goes on and on and on. And we saw that our own aspirations are futile. They're vain. Because nothing that we accomplish, nothing that we promote lasts. It just fades away. So we saw these three things. So let's do application. First, we should pursue ministry, not worldly success. Ministry, not worldly success. I don't know if you've realized it, but if you're in this room and you have trusted Christ as Savior, you are called into ministry. You might not be called into vocational ministry, but 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation and that God is making an appeal through us begging the world to be reconciled to him. And you guys are the ministers of that reconciliation. So we should pursue ministry, not worldly success. Um, and a quick story, there's a guy that we met in the UK. He, he goes to the church there. His name is Anthony. And he was talking about how he was about to graduate from university. And he was looking for jobs and found that there were no good jobs in Sunderland, that they were all down in London, but there are no good churches in London. And first of all, we take for granted here in the United States that give or take a little bit, if, if you get a job somewhere, you can find a church. Um, that's not true over there. So we kind of take that for granted. And he was saying that if he were to leave and pursue success, he would leave behind that spiritual body of believers. And he said that we must discipline our dreams for Christ. It just that hit me. I mean, the world tells us to chase our dreams, right? Pursue our dreams, reach for the stars. But we're saying discipline our dreams for Christ. So... Pursue ministry, not success. Next thing, we should seek the eternal reward, not the temporal. The eternal reward, not the temporal. Next, we should promote the name that is above all names rather than trying to promote our own. If we know that Christ is the only one who satisfies, we should seek to promote his name above our own. And finally, we should keep the eternal perspective, that there are three things which are eternal, God, his word, and people. So let us live in a way which seeks to be satisfied in Christ, promoting his name, and focusing on the things which last.